stories of horrifying murders of young black men were relegated to like the middle pages of the of the newspaper to local news these men were dying week after week after week and people just weren't talking about it people just seemed to have accepted Hello and welcome to another episode of On the Edge with Andrew Gold. Today's guest is Luke Gittos, who is a lawyer, writer and director of Freedom Law UK, which you should look up. It's in the description and they help people who can't afford it to be able to study as a lawyer, to get legal studies and things. Uh, And I think that's really, really helpful and makes for a more diverse law space, uh, which I think is something that we need. Um, The people who are enforcing laws, making laws, defending people, prosecuting people need to be from all walks of life. So uh, it's a very, it's a a brilliant thing that he's doing really, Luke. And he's a great speaker. And he's controversial as well, because he doesn't just toe the line. He's uh, able to see things in a a different way, I I would say, and is very, very interesting. So we talk about uh, rape culture and the fact, you know, because I was getting told a lot that three percent only three percent of of rapes uh end in a conviction and he says that's utterly false it's not true at all and he explains why that is and why that is damaging to women uh who are raped to believe that and and you know and then we get on to just stop oil uh we talk about hugh edwards and um the age limits and things like that uh we have a bit of a disagreement about what the uh legal age should be for sex um because i think it should be 18 but uh, he, he's saying, you know, we don't want to sort of enforce more laws. Well, you'll see what he says. Uh, we, yeah, we talk about Just Stop Oil and protesters and what you can do to sort of move them out of the way and what their rights are as well as protesters. And we get a little bit into hate speech and that draconian police um, example where, where I don't know, people outside the UK won't know of it, where they went in and um, shouted at this uh, and arrested a young autistic girl who had said that a police officer looked like a lesbian. Uh, waste of police time and a horrible event for that young girl. So really interesting, lots of different things. I'm trying to, it's a bit of a throwback episode to some of the episodes I used to do before YouTube made everything so sort of one track mind. Uh, several different themes today that I hope you really, really enjoy. Uh, as I say, go and check out the, the links to Luke um, in the description. And there are loads of big episodes coming out, as always. But now, you're on the edge of all sorts of controversial legal things with Luke Gittos. Luke, you're a lawyer, writer and director of the Freedom Law Clinic. I'm going to be asking you later about some troubling issues around Just Stop Oil protesters and uh, the troubling hate speech bills being introduced into quite a few countries such as Ireland. But first, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the big story in the news at the moment, or one of the big stories, Danny Masterson, the Scientologist actor from that 70s show who has gone down for 30 to life. My understanding is that actually means that it's life, but you get a chance of parole after 30 years, by which time he'll be 77. Um, We're going to get into a bit of cult dynamics and things, but a lot of people have responded to my videos. And here's something that I am quite interested in, uh, saying that only 3% of, and I'm I'm just going to use the, just say R, I don't know what to say because you can't say it on YouTube, but cases involving what Masterson did, which is SA is another word that people, another abbreviation people use sometimes, only 3% are convicted um, is that actually true or, or is that a fallacy? So I've been writing about this for quite a long time in the English context. And one thing that's come up time and time and again is the idea that only 3% of 
uh, these kinds of cases end in a conviction. And it's a really damaging rumour, really damaging false bit of information because um, the reality is that once, in the UK context, once a case gets before a jury, the chances of it ending in a conviction are about 60%. So they're actually more likely to convict wow. than not. Yeah, I think when I last looked at it, the statistics were actually higher, but I think around 72% of cases ended in a conviction that got to court. Now, the, the, the confusion that people make is that it is true to say that around 3% of reports that are made about these kind of cases um, end in a conviction. In other words, if you looked at every single time someone contacted the police and made an allegation of this kind, about 3% of them would end up with a, someone being convicted of the same crime. But the reason why that's a misleading statistic to quote is, firstly, it doesn't take account of the fact that cases fall out of the justice system for loads of different reasons. And actually, these kinds of offences are not that different when you look at that figure for other offences. So, for example, offences involving very serious assaults, like uh, assault occasioning grievous bodily harm, similarly... About four or five percent of cases that um, start with an allegation of that nature end in a conviction. So it's a little bit higher, but but not a lot higher. Um, you get very high figures um, for what we call attrition. So what we're talking about there is the attrition rate, the cases that start with a complaint and end in a conviction. You have a very high attrition rate in this country for things like murder. But that's because people are quite unlikely to make a report about murder unless a murder has actually happened. You know, it's, yeah. it's usually quite obvious that a murder has happened. Whereas with almost every other offence you care to mention, it's less clear when someone makes a report that, that, that firstly, a crime has happened. Secondly, someone can be found and can be held culpable for it. So that's why, um, and, and it's not just me saying this, this was um, identified in a report into reporting relating to this issue from 2010. A woman called Baroness Stern produced a report on and was really critical on the way that these cases are discussed, saying that, um, you know, this, the idea that only 3% of cases end in a conviction is hugely misleading. And the consequence of that is that it puts people off engaging in the process altogether it, it gives people the idea that oh yeah it's not it's not worth engaging with because even if you get to court the jury will just disbelieve you and of course that actually has a ripple effect because when you that the idea behind that behind highlighting that statistic is to say that juries can't really be trusted to make these important decisions you know they're prejudiced they don't believe women they um are inherently geared against particular kinds of complainants. And actually, when you look at the reality, the opposite is true. Juries are incredibly fair and objective. Um, there is an academic at the London School of Economics. Uh, I think she's at the London School of Economics called Helen Thomas. And, to and she is the person who has conducted the most rigorous research into jury trials in this country. And consistently, time and time again, She's found jury trials generally, from the perspective of the jury, to be completely fair, without prejudice against race, sex, gender. Juries do tend to make decisions in really impartial and objective ways. And it's the fairest 
system of justice in the world, I think, the jury system in, in the form that we have it, you can't really find a better way of making those kinds of decisions, I don't think. I think it's far superior to the system in France where you have two lawyers arguing and one judge deciding on the truth, or I think three judges deciding on the truth. I think I think our system is actually better than America where juries are far more controlled. There's a lot more power to vet juries in America. Um, mm. I think our system, you know, really does trust members of the public to make some quite serious decisions with very profound consequences. And all the research suggests they do an incredibly good job. So that's why I think that statistic that you mentioned is so harmful because it is a libel against our decision, our, our ability to make these decisions. It, su it suggests that we are prejudiced as a society um, against particular kinds of complainants and against particular kinds of cases. And I, it, there's no basis to it. It's completely false. Mm. It's, it's really interesting. Um, and it's why I like listening to you, actually, because you're making what appears on the surface to, to be sort of quite an anti-progressive point, because people, I think, want to believe like, hey, only 3% are, are believed and, and people won't believe them. But it really is quite a progressive point that you're making because you're saying we need to, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's not true and people need to know that it's not true because they need to know and have that confidence coming forward uh, because otherwise they don't because people feel like, oh, you know, a woman might feel I, I don't want to come forward if only 3%. They need to know that actually if they come forward, they are more likely to be believed. Yeah, I mean, the major problem that does still exist without wanting to be too optimistic about it is with the police. So the police do still trouble to properly investigate these kinds of offences because they're difficult crimes to investigate. There's no way of getting around it. It's not like fraud where there is a paper trail that can be easily accessed. It's not like um, violence where there's usually, you know, a lot of witnesses. There's usually a lot of physical evidence about what has taken place. These kinds of offences create real evidential difficulties. Um, and I think that that, that, that means that it is a harder crime to investigate. But to give credit to the police where it's due, they've created specialist units to investigate these kinds of offences. There are specially trained officers now whose sole job is to investigate these kinds of crimes, who are well trained in getting the best possible evidence from complainants in these cases. People who come forward with these allegations are treated differently to all other complainants in the justice system. They will be given the chance wow. to video their evidence initially. So they will sit down with an officer and have their first evidence taken on video and that will be used as what we call their evidence in chief, which is, is their account given to the jury. Usually a video will be played of that rather than them having to give the evidence live. And actually the system is moving towards more um, dilutions of traditional protections for defendants in the name of um, making the experience more, I suppose, comfortable for complainants in these kinds of cases. So, for example, they're talking about making um, even the cross-examination of complainants um, pre-recorded. So, subject to uh, doing that through being through having it pre-recorded, and also placing further limits on what questions you can and cannot ask. There are already a lot of legal limits on what you can ask in the course of a case like this. Um, but they're certainly thinking about introducing more and more of them. Um, mm. So, in fact, you know, the system's not perfect. 
there are still real problems in the way that the police deal with these. And I've got no doubt. In my practice, I see both. Um, so we prosecute these offences as well as defending them. And we also represent victims who have been let down by the system. So I see both sides of the coin. I see people who have been very seriously let down by the police. Um, and I see defendants who are on the other side who are facing um, allegations. And all the time, it's like one thing I try and emphasize is just how complicated these cases are morally, ethically. They're often far more complicated than the simplistic narratives would have you believe. There's two sides to the story very often. And, you know, I'm reminded of the case of Andrew Malkinson, who's just been exonerated after serving, I think, 15 to 18 years in custody. He was exonerated after a piece of new evidence came forward. Um, but, of course, at the time, the victim in that case thought it was him. She thought she had got the right man. And she was wrong. And I think so sad. It's, it's tragic for everyone in that case that the police... Uh, failed so spectacularly and that the CCRC, the, the, the body who were charged with reviewing miscarriages of justice, failed to properly investigate it. But for me, it was a real illustration of the danger of simply believing. You know, the justice system is not here to believe people. It's here to test them. And it's here to test them because what's at the end of that process is the denial of someone's liberty. And if we don't test it, if we don't test what people are saying, then we will continue to take people's liberty away on the basis of words or the basis of mm. mere allegation. And that would be to roll back hundreds of years of, of progress, building up a defendant's right in the context of the courtroom. It would be to reverse all the progress that we've made. And that would be tragic. I suppose it depends some of this on how... a each individual feels about is it is it called Blackwell's ratio? Is that do you, do you know what I'm talking about? If I say Blackwell's ratio, uh, enlighten me, Andrew. I, I will, I will with my my amazing knowledge. It might be not be Blackstone. Blackstone's ratio. It is better that ten guilty persons escape than that one innocent suffer. Um, and I think somebody along the line, Benjamin Franklin, later changed it to. It is better that a hundred guilty persons should escape than that one innocent person should suffer. The idea of an innocent person suffering is just the, you know, absolutely horrible. But then the idea of a, a guilty, uh, a victim not being able to get justice is also horrible. And I guess each individual in our society, you know, they have to weigh up where they where they fall on this. Um, and another thing is like, okay, so there must be a lot of people who who like the police don't press charges or prosecutors don't press charges. That doesn't necessarily mean they're not guilty. I'm thinking of um, Hugh Edwards, uh, who, who for anyone outside of Britain, the BBC presenter was recently embroiled in a scandal because um, he had been sending nude photos and things with, we don't know if it's a boy or a girl, who's believed to have been under 18, maybe 17 at the time. And then the police, I think, dropped... Do, do you know much about what happened, might have happened yeah. there, and, and if that means he's not guilty necessarily? Yeah, so the police investigated and there was no crime that had been committed. So there was an investigation, meaning that there was a formal process opened, the police investigated, and they must have concluded that this was a consensual engagement with two adults, um, whatever the detail of that. Um, you know, we heard a lot of rumours that effectively this was... Um, 
one person paying a very high amount of money for a photograph of someone else. Um, but if that is a consensual, there was a moment when we thought it might be a criminal offence because of the specific rules relating to sharing images um, and of underage people. Of, uh, and there was some ambiguity about the age limit. But it became clear quite quickly that that was a consensual and legal arrangement. And so from the level of the law, Hugh Edwards didn't have anything to answer for. Do, do you, are there cases though where the police are just like, well, the kid, it was a seventeen-year-old, but he it might have been on OnlyFans, and that's why he thought they were eighteen, and so we're not going to bother prosecuting. Yeah, I mean, knowledge is key to almost all of these offences. So, if someone has published on OnlyFans, that would represent a defence in that you would have the what we call in law the actus reus, which is the guilty act, the thing that you mm -hmm. do in order to break the law. But then you'd also have to have the mens rea, which is the guilty mind, the, the mental dimension of the crime. And in, um, in almost every uh, criminal offence, there are both elements. And in these offences, um, you would have to know that the person was or suspect that the person was underage in order to be found guilty. You wouldn't be found guilty, I don't think, um, merely for... Um, for having the images there are so so for example the same i think is true of um child pornography offenses that generally um you need to know or suspect that the person is underage um otherwise it would be an absolute defense to say that you thought that the person in the image was overage so mm. that 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 and and obviously only fans being a site where they are regulated and they have purported protections against anyone underage broadcasting to help. It would be a strong defense to say that this material was available on a website such as that. I remember there was a, I was looking into some of this stuff to do with uh, crimes against children. Uh, <clears throat> and there was a case of a Venezuelan man, I think he was, but living in the state in the States who had been somewhere, maybe back to Venezuela, I don't know, and he picked up one of these movies uh, at a market. And on his way back into the US, he was stopped and they searched his stuff. And it, it, the picture on the cover looked like someone who was underage. And he was he was being prosecuted and he was going to spend time in prison. And they were using something called the Tanner scale, which is like, they it's a way to be able to tell someone's body age. Okay. Um, and he was about to go down, and at the last minute, the lawyer for him had managed to convince the actual um, adult entertainer to, to like fly over and represent, you know, and be a witness and say she was actually nineteen at the age of uh, the recording of the video that he had. So he got off, and then that—that's like you know that was justice served in that respect. But then you also think like, well, who is that? Who is that? Who are those videos being aimed at? If she clearly looked younger, so it's like a whole moral yeah. conundrum that. Yeah, absolutely. I think we'll see more of this as um, I think it's really disturbing that more and more young people are being caught up in sharing sexualized images of themselves. That raises and something yeah. we're seeing quite a lot of is young people being prosecuted for firstly sharing images of them, not, not the person usually sharing being prosecuted, but the person receiving an image like that. They need to be extremely careful because in certain circumstances, they will know that the photo is that they're receiving is an indecent image of a child because they themselves are a child. And it's not necessarily a defense to say, 
um, I knew she was 15, but I was 15 myself. You know, that can still, wow. yeah. So that's still very, very dangerous. And then it becomes even more dangerous if that person hits send to a bunch of their friends. Suddenly they wow. are distributing indecent images of a child. And it can be completely destructive of a child's life to have this kind of conviction on their record. You know, those convictions don't go anywhere. Wow. We've had young clients ending up on the sex offenders register for 10 years, five years. It's not unheard of at all. And obviously, children being children, um, introducing these images into kind of teenage lives, I just think is so dangerous because you have that normal back and forth of people falling out when they're young and breaking up with each other and, um, you know, ending up on the rough end of a breakup and then all sorts of, you know, suddenly someone sends them a, a photo that they've got stored on their phone as revenge and then suddenly they're, they're getting a knock from the police. So it is a dangerous time for young people to be engaged in this kind of activity and wow. people really need to be aware of it. Hey, it's Andrew. If you're enjoying Heretics, there's another podcast I want to recommend to you, especially if climate change, global conflicts and an upcoming election are making you feel like we're on the brink of disaster. What Could Go Right is hosted by Progress Network founder Zachary Carabell and executive director Emma Varvalukas. On What Could Go Right, the hosts sit down with expert guests to discuss the world's most pressing issues without resorting to pessimism or despair that we hear so often. Instead, they look back at how far society has come and look forward at what it will take to achieve an even brighter future. Is progress on the way? They may not have all the answers, but on what could go right, they're asking the key questions. Tune in to hear interviews with upcoming guests like writer Coleman Hughes, CNN host Fareed Zakaria, and economist Alison Schrager. If you're looking for a weekly dose of optimistic ideas from smart people, join them every Wednesday on What Could Go Right, available wherever you get your podcasts. A few decades ago, private citizens used to be largely that, private. What's changed? The internet. Think about everything you've browsed, searched for, watched or tweeted. Now imagine all of that data being crawled through, collected and aggregated by third parties into a permanent public record. Your record. Having your private life exposed for others to see was once something only celebrities worried about. But in an era where everyone is online, everyone is a public figure. To keep my data private when I go online, I turn to ExpressVPN. Did you know there are hundreds of data brokers out there whose sole business is to buy and sell your data? The worst part is they don't have to tell you who they're selling it to or get your consent. One of these data points is your IP address. Data harvesters use your IP to uniquely identify you and your location. But with ExpressVPN, my connection gets rerouted through an encrypted server and my IP address is masked. Every time I turn ExpressVPN on, I'm given a random IP address shared by other ExpressVPN customers. That makes it more difficult for third parties to identify me and harvest my data. And the best part is how easy ExpressVPN is to use. No matter what device you're on, phone, laptop or smart TV, all you have to do is tap one button to get protected. So if, like me, you believe that your data is your business, secure yourself with the number one rated VPN on the market. Visit expressvpn.com slash heretics and get three extra months for free. That's expressvpn.com slash heretics. Go to expressvpn.com slash heretics to learn more. 
Yeah, that you're blowing my mind with this. This is this that's absolutely that seems crazy to me because I I'm now thinking you know you're all, I don't even have kids but I would like to have kids and you're always thinking with the changing of the the uh, you know technology and everything you're thinking well what advice do I need to give them yeah and I suppose I mean would you say then that I mean because okay you, obviously they shouldn't be sending out photos of their ex-girlfriend or whatever you know that's an awful thing to do and I hope you'd hope that your kids won't do that or who knows uh, but even just having that as possession on their phone if they're in a relationship with a 15 year old girl or with a 15 year old boy or whatever do you, do you need to advise your kids not to do that and have that i think it is a dangerous thing you know the police should the police should always take a, a view on what is in the interests of justice to investigate and then the, the the cps have to consider what's in the interests of justice to actually prosecute you'd hope that most of these cases would be wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't necessarily proceed to a prosecution. But we have seen these cases go forward when people have fallen out and had images and sent images in a, in a moment of rage. And it's not, it's, it's something that parents really need to be aware of. Because um, the police are sympathetic to young people, but they're not that sympathetic. That If they think that there is malice behind the sharing of this image and you've got a young girl who is suddenly faced with the fact that there is a photograph of them being circulated, you know, the police could take a really dim view of that and um, could seek to proceed it quite quite vehemently. Man, it's, a com- it's a complicated world being a teenager today. One thing I was thinking about with the whole Hugh Edwards thing, and again, this is something for non- non-Brits might seem weird, but we had this whole discussion around the fact that the age limit, you know, you have to be over 16 to engage in sex, but it was 18 if you want to be able to, photos and things like that. And everyone was saying, why aren't they just the same? And I felt like a lot of people was suggesting, well, why aren't they the same? They both should be 16. And I don't want to sort of feel, come over, you know, conservative and old fashioned, but I I felt like, well, why isn't it 18 really? Uh, 17 year olds can do what they want with one another. Who is it benefiting having a law that allows, which which doesn't happen in most of the states, for example, that allows a, a 16 year old allows say a 40 year old or a 50 year old or 60 year old to be having engaged in relations with a 16 year old who's still in high school i mean look generally the law is a blunt instrument and it's got to draw a line somewhere and the problems that we face quite often is that the law has to come down on one side i would just be wary of like i, I think in general getting the criminal law out of people's lives as much as we possibly can is a good thing you know, these things ought to be resolved as informally as we can. Because, you know, I think one danger we have today is that we rely on the law to do too much. We say, oh, this is a problem. You know, our kids sexting each other is a real problem. Let's get a law in to fix it. And what that is, firstly, it's an abdication of our responsibility, not just as parents, but as adult society. I think is saying that we as adults can't create the kind of culture where we can make our kids feel punished without resorting to the law. You know, it used to be that we would have not just, you know, you'd have your parents, you'd have your family that would pour scorn on young people's behaviour and make you feel kind of shameful for what you've done. But you would also have this kind of society around you who would, you know, you would be worried about offending not just your parents but kind of the wider the wider society of where you live i think the problem now is that too often we think well we've got this problem how do we fix it let's prosecute anyone who adds to it let's get the law in let's put these people through the court system and actually what would be more effective is 
some kind of informal way of dealing with it, which didn't bring the kind of awful consequences that the criminal law have for, for young people, um, but, with, but which also had a sense of shame and, 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 and gave the, but also gave the young people the possibility of changing and rebuilding. So that's a bit of a waffly answer, but I guess we should be wary when we call for more laws because in general, mm. the law is not a good way of dealing with social problems. Mm. I, I respect that. And I've, I'm a bit of a libertarian myself. And I don't, I, I, I think there's a slippery slope towards authoritarianism. You start a law here and a law there. I just feel like I, I got thinking about it because of Hugh Edwards. Maybe the, the kids he was talking to, maybe they were 18. Uh, and I don't, you know, morally, I don't think that necessarily clear, clears him. I mean, just morally, not legally. I just think this is guy in his 60s. If I had a friend in his 30s who's messaging with 17 or 18-year-olds, I'd be like, what, what are you doing? Um, just seems a bit odd to me. Cause I th just because a lot of people who are sort of centrist like myself were coming forward and defending him and going, oh, you can do what you want. And, you, and I thought, well, maybe that I, it's a bit much 60 to 18. Um, so, to, so for me, it's, I, I, don't, well, I don't really want to be introducing new laws, but I just feel like that there should be something, I think, to stop a 60-year-old or a 50-year-old or 40-year-old potentially manipulating someone who's not even old enough to vote not even old enough to uh, drink or anything like that, and they're still in high school. The thing is, though, Andrew, it's like you can't conflate bad sexual behaviour with breaking the law. What you're talking about yeah. is kind of immoral behaviour, immoral conduct. And we've always recognised that yeah. there has to be a line between immorality and law-breaking. And the the... The, the risk with the approach that you encourage is, well, where do we stop? You know, where, where do we stop the law's intervention into people's private and intimate lives? Yeah, we might not like the fact that a 50-year-old, a 60-year-old is communicating and drawing in uh, someone who's 17. But the law has to have a cutoff point. And... I think we need to recognise that behaviour can be immoral and can be frowned upon without necessarily jumping to the fact that it has to be, has to attract the, the intervention of the criminal law. Um, yeah. Because I think... I'll do 18. Yeah, well, I think, look, one thing that's always been true is that I always think about the history of particularly gay liberation in this country. So that was really a story of getting the law out of people's lives gay sex in this country was illegal until like the mid 90s you know it it remained wow. sodomy remained an, a criminal offense until remarkably recently um and people you know were still being prosecuted for indecency uh being prosecuted you know gay people couldn't exist in the public in the way that they can now until fairly recently and that was the fault of the criminal law you know the criminal law the, the age of consent was always higher for gay men than it was for everyone else. Um, there were more restrictions placed on gay relationships than were placed on straight ones. And the criminal law remained a kind of symbol of prejudice for a very, very long time. And of course, that's not, you know, it's not comparable to kind of eliciting photographs from younger people, but it does remind us that the criminal law has almost always played a role of um, a really punitive role in the context of people's private lives. And for, for a long time, that really held us back. Um, so I think that, yeah, 
we should always just be careful about encouraging the law to become more involved. Um, mm. I mean, Hugh Edwards' case, you know, I think there was a public interest in pursuing it. A lot of people came out and said, you should leave him alone. It's just his private life. That's rubbish. You know, he was a publicly, he was paid out of the public purse. He's made quite a significant payment out of that money that he was paid to a young person for their photograph. As a, as a member of BBC staff and someone who presents a BBC television programme, you are held up as a kind of beacon of national character in a way which you wouldn't if you were working for a private company or organisation. So it was a matter of public interest, what he'd been doing in his private life. And, you know, if he wanted to do that sort of thing, he should have probably thought twice about either continuing as a, in the role that he had um, or about discontinuing what he was doing. So I don't think it was in the, it was contrary to the public interest to investigate this. Um, but by the same token, I don't think it would have helped anyone to have him prosecuted. Um, mm. But what would that have achieved? Nothing. You know, we saw at the time that there were more details that emerged around the possible pressure that was being put on this young person to come forward with a criminal allegation. I think there was a lot of manipulation from the family about um, claiming that this was non-consensual when it was. So all of these complexities very quickly emerge around these kinds of cases and we should be wary of trying to apply a simplistic narrative to it. And at the end of the day, you should just ask yourself, what good would a prosecution have done? And in, in my view, in, in Hugh Edwards' case, absolutely none. No, no, perhaps not. I suppose if you're in, in the abstract, you could say sort of deterrent for, for others who are, you know, procuring these kinds of images and things. But but it appears that he didn't even know the age of the, the person anyway. So I think I agree with you that we, we didn't need uh, any kind of prosecution or anything, but that we can all say like, well, you know, it's not really on what he was doing. Um, so fair enough. Going back to that, that Danny Masterson case, that, right, just to, to, fill, to fill anyone in on this who isn't aware, this was, this was 20 years in the making. So you were talking before about the kinds of things that are done uh, in terms of getting evidence. But what about in historic cases like Masterson? So it took 20 years. The, the only way they were able to prove it in the end, I think, and I, I might be mistaken on this, is that the women were telling Scientology at the time, and Scientology writes everything down. Uh, so there were just hours and hours and hours of these reports, and also Scientology telling them not to come forward uh, because they'll deal with it internally, which they didn't do, of course. Um, but what kinds of things can you do in a historic case like that? So what will often happen, if we take the example of, say, Rolf Harris, which was all historic allegations... It is a we should just say it's a was he Austra was he Australian? Yeah, Australian, Australian British. Was, I think he was an Australian British Jill National yeah. presenter, musician and presenter, yeah. very popular, um, and then was accused of a string of sexual offences uh, involving children, and was eventually convicted, but had some of his convictions overturned um, by the Court of Appeal, not all of them. Um, <clears throat> And it gave us an insight into um, how you go about proving these kind of historic cases because there are a number of similar uh, individuals who, who are being made subject to historic allegations around the same time, um, primarily arising out of Operation Newtree, which was, I mean, it was a police investigation that occurred in the UK um, into a string of high-profile individuals um, 
and it was triggered by um, revelations regarding one particular individual called Jimmy Savile, who was a high-profile British um, um, personality. Presenter. But but yeah, cu- coming on to um, Rolf Harris, he was actually J- Jimmy Savile was not prosecuted and convicted, and he died before they could do so. But Rolf Harris was, and it gave us an insight into how they investigate and prosecute historic allegations of this kind. And what is pretty key to it is a common modus operandi among witnesses. So what can make a story credible is if someone comes forward and gives an account of what has happened, which is very similar in detail to something that someone else has said about this individual and where there has been no contact between the two people saying the same thing. In other words, if I say to someone... Um, I saw Andrew Gold wearing uh, red shoes the other day and someone completely unrelated to me, I've never met, said, I saw Andrew Gold wearing red shoes the other day. It becomes more likely that Andrew has a pair of red shoes. In it, if you expand that out to um, these kinds of allegations, you had very specific details which seemed to provide a common modus operandi for Rolf Harris with respect to a number of different complainants. Now, those specifics included things like um, how he gained access to young people and children. So he he, he was obviously a prolific public figure. He would spend a lot of time at public events. Um, And if you go and read the Court of Appeal judgment, which quashed two of the convictions, I think, but maintained the rest, you'll see that there were these commonalities among how the victims um, made their complaints, which made their individual cases stronger. And that can be enough to bring someone to trial. So if you have a series of people who are making similar allegations, and if you have some form of corroboration, which means that there is some evidence which supports the basic truth of what they're saying, then that can be enough to bring someone to a historic prosecution that can because actually that evidence can be quite strong because when you're dealing with these kinds of cases really when someone makes an allegation they're either telling the truth or they're lying that's really the only issue Um, they may be lying for different reasons but someone is either telling the truth or lying they might be mistaken but that's far less common when this when you're dealing with a historic allegation Um, and they're far less likely to be lying if more than one person comes up with the same detailed account, because it's, it's, it's hard, you know, that would be hard to do. It'd be hard to concoct something without me- ever meeting the other person. So that's mm. how you can bring a historic case like, like that. I'm not familiar with the, with the Masterson case in, in its detail, but obviously the Scientology records would, were, would be unusual in any other case. It's not usual for an organization to write down the details of historic sexual abuse and keep them for many years. Um, yeah. That seems with to, the aim of suppressing them. Yeah. That seems absolutely extraordinary. Um, mm. But thank goodness they did, I suppose, um, because it appears yeah. that justice has been done. Yeah. Yeah. It appears so. Uh, it was, it was, yeah, I could think it was mainly based on that kind of evidence. And it was a difficult one because though the, there were three accusers who, who all would have spoken to one another. So it's difficult to, to know, you know, and, and they all had similar stories, of course, that they went to his 
house in the Hollywood Hills. He had these big parties and he was slipping things into their drinks like Bill Cosby would do. And he had this nickname, DJ Donkey Punch, which is a uh, donkey punch is a, is a horrible thing that one does to somebody while engaging in intercourse. So really horrible. What you were saying just before about the way that you have to identify things, it just reminded me of something that I'd forgotten until like just now, you know, from years ago, which was Michael Jackson. They They had to... Did they have to sort of identify his penis? I think they had to like draw his penis or something. Well, I think in that case, there were some very specific um, details of Mr. Jackson's genitals mm. that one of the complainants mm. claimed to have seen. And of course, if that was right, it's, it's hard to think of a scenario where someone would have seen Michael Jackson's penis without Michael Jackson showing it to them. Yeah. To, I mean, you, ha- you have yeah. to think about these cases in those terms. I mean... So yeah, that that actually became quite compelling evidence, didn't it? Because um, it's mm. if he was right about the specific characteristics, um, then how else would he have got that information other than seeing it? And how else would he have seen it other than being shown it? So all of these ways of kind of proving these cases come up um, time and time again. You know. Um, I, I don't deal with these cases much anymore, but I did. Um, uh, um, I, I have done in, in in the 13 years that I've been doing this job, and all the time it's about the nuance and the detail of the allegations that really makes a difference. Um, how how the details marry up with with other corroborating evidence. While I've got you here, I want to. And I don't usually do this. I usually stick to one topic. But I've got someone who's an expert in all in this in this field of of law on, and I want to ask about something that is taking the whole world by storm, which is just stop oil. I don't know if they're called different things in different places, uh, but around the world, you're seeing these videos of angry uh, motorists, and I would be one of them if I were in a car uh, trying to get somewhere, and there are people who are sort of cementing their hands, you know, with cement uh, or glue or whatever it might be, and stopping people from from getting to places. They're protesting. Um, yeah, wh- wh- where do you, what's the news on this, actually? There was some news re- related to uh, people assigning things. Yeah, so there was a petition from lawyers in this country uh, that circulated when these prosecutions started happening. Um, and lawyers were saying that they would simply refuse to prosecute Just Up Oil um, protesters. So the way it works is in this country is that prosecuting lawyers get are meant to prosecute any case that they're given without fear or favour. You know, if you're given a really nasty murder or if you're given a really nasty um, sexual offence, then um, you should be prosecuting it without fear or bringing your own personal judgment to it. But this position starts circulating saying that prosecuting lawyers would not prosecute those who had um, part- taken part in just stop oil protests. And these protesters are charged with what's called obstructing the highway. They can be charged with public order offences. Um, but the key one is um, basically obstructing the highway, which is a serious criminal offence in, in, in certain circumstances. So some really high-profile people started ha- um, signing this, including a lawyer in this country called Joe Morm, who was he's kind of an, a, a high-profile activist lawyer. Oh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, he's kind of a high-profile activist lawyer in this country, but is also kind of symbolic of a kind of political slice of the legal establishment over here who are more open with their politics than perhaps other lawyers are. Um, But of course, uh, these lawyers actually were were vast, were were roundly criticised by other legal professionals because 
for most of us, we do just deal with the cases that we're given. We don't select based on our own personal preferences or yeah. our own politics. It's not the way lawyers are meant to be. Lawyers are meant to be impartial and sit at, sit as much as we can outside of the politics of what we're being asked to do. I mean, I'm an openly political person. I write for a political magazine. Um, I do a lot of political stuff. But in my work, that goes. That I leave that at the door because I recognise that I'm there to perform a particular role in a system that's bigger than myself. Um, and when it comes to these protesters, you know, the public want the law enforced. You know, they want these people to be held accountable for what they've done. Um, and they are being held accountable. So we've seen the people who... Uh, people internationally might not have seen, but there were some protesters who strapped themselves to Dartford Bridge, which is a big, huge bridge that comes into London from the south of England. And um, they caused enormous disruption on that bridge. And they received custodial sentences. I think they received prison sentences of three and two years, which are serious sentences. You know, we don't give prison out lightly in this country. And to send someone to prison is a big deal. And we have sent those people to prison. However, there have been others that have got away with um, far less serious punishment. Um, but nonetheless, the law is dealing with them. But these barristers were saying that they're not going to prosecute them. Now, what was interesting was that most of the lawyers that signed it weren't criminal lawyers. They were tax lawyers and civil liberties lawyers, and they would never have been asked to prosecute oh. them anyway. So the withdrawal of their services wasn't particularly meaningful or impactful. Um, but nonetheless, it kind of it represented how lawyers sometimes can allow their politics to dictate their legal work in a way which I think is wrong and, and counterproductive. I think you, there's nothing wrong with it. With, as I say, lawyers being political, I'm a political lawyer myself. I do a lot of pro bono work, which is guided by certain principles. I do a lot of work on free speech related cases. I do that for free because I think that there is a principle worth upholding. But when I'm actually working on the cases, you know, I don't allow my politics to guide the way that I work on them. I might take them on and yeah. give them my time because I care about them, but I don't allow my politics to, to drive the way that I work on them. And that's the distinction that we've got to draw as, as professionals, I think. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in education into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu. It's such a fascinating um, idea, the whole Just Stop Oil thing. I, I, just talking from a political or, or philosophical point of view, because I flip-flop on it so much, because obviously nothing annoys me more than seeing that like, we've all been held up and that these people who do it, and I think this is often the case with activists who, you know, maybe there's a greater good, but I think they're often psychopaths. That's just me talking flippantly uh, to believe that you are there to create change. But also historically, uh, you know, what was it with the, the suffragettes who she jumped in front of a um, horse? Or, yeah. Um, what was oh, I yeah, had she, a name? She, yeah, she, she, she threw herself in front of a horse in order to draw attention to um, the cause for women's... Emily Davison. So, yeah, and they did lots of, you know, the the... the the women's suffrage movement engaged in vandalism, bombings. Uh, you know, it wasn't a peaceful movement by any stretch of the imagination. But the key distinction between 
Just Up Oil and the activists for, for female suffrage was that the, the, the women going after the vote were arguing for their ability to put their democratic position forward. They didn't have any other means available to them oh, to, yeah. make, to make their point because they were denied the franchise. They were saying, well, look, if we can't make our point in the public sphere through our vote, then we're going to have to use other means. Just Stop Oil can vote for uh, green parties. They can vote for parties that make particular commitments to um, re reducing oil and reducing our carbon consumption. But what's more about Just Stop Oil is that their political demands are completely unworkable. I mean, no political party would seriously say we're just going to stop using um, fossil fuels as of today. No, and... I don't think anyone within Just Up Oil thinks that's a feasible or realistic suggestion. And actually, I'm, I'll say it. I think when you listen to Just Up Oil activists, they sound slightly unhinged and slightly divorced from reality and, 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 and perhaps not as politically sophisticated in their arguments as they might, as they might or as they ought to be. You know, there's not a lot yeah. of thought that what? goes into actually how they implement the proposals that they're asking for. Um, and so when you when you have when you're causing that level of disruption and having a, alongside a series of demands which no one thinks is practically feasible, they just an, they just become an annoyance. You know, there's nothing. There's no better word yeah. for them. I emailed them because I thought it could be a, you know quite a fun documentary to make where I follow them around and see them getting shouted at and I'm stood next to them and 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 I also you know as I was saying before I have some sympathy with the idea. I know that. A lot of people say, well, look, if you want to get your word out there, just put flyers up. And it's like, well, that's not going to, you know, not that I necessarily agree with what they're saying, but I just know that they have a cause. They want to get it out there. And one way to do it is through disturbance. Um, but I emailed and they and I said, listen, I, I honestly, I will try and give both sides to this and try and really understand it because I'm not that interested in the politics as, as a documentary. I'm interested in the intriguing, just just the intrigue of the clashes and things. Um, and they replied saying, there is no other side to this. Yeah, <laughs> I just thought, like, am I speaking with a child? Here, yeah, you know? I think that's what they believe. They think, well, we shouldn't have to explain this to you. And so yeah. because we shouldn't have to explain, we can do whatever we want in making the point. Um, and you will suffer if you don't listen to us. And I think that I think that's politically alienating for the vast majority of the public. And I'm afraid, you know, I very rarely come out. I'm a defense lawyer, so I have a kind of intuitive reaction against the power of the state. But I do think that the law has to be enforced. And I do think when it comes to these individuals, the real danger is that we don't enforce the law properly. And then people start taking the law into their own hands, as we've seen over the you know, last few weeks, people using physical force against these individuals in order to get them out of the road. You're seeing that more and more wherever they crop up across the, across the world, people are, yeah. people are taking the job on themselves. And I made this point in a separate podcast, you know, police have the power to, to just move those people straight away. If the police ever say to you, I do not have the power to do anything, they do. They certainly do. Um, any police officer who believes an offence is being committed has an, a power of arrest. And it's pretty obvious mm -hmm. when these protests occur that an offence is being committed and the offence is obstructing the highway. So that police officer should be arresting those people immediately. Why they don't, I have no idea. And I think it leads on to an interesting discussion about the police and optics and the way that they see the public um, and the way that they're interpreted in the public. Because one thing I'm really worried about in, in terms of contemporary policing is that we get, um, sometimes in the, in the media, we get our discussion of the police completely the wrong way around. We think that they, they're brutal 
oppressive. Um, they're obsessed with, you know, coming down on the oppressed. I think, if anything, the problem today is the opposite in that the police are worried about enforcing the law because they're worried about being seen to be oppressive um, and draconian and uh, over the top. I think that, 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 that's, that, that we have a problem with authoritative policing in this, in this country and yeah. policing which is built around enforcing law and order. That's what the police are there for, you know. Um, so, of course, there are exceptions to that. There are exceptions of the population who are massively over-policed and, you know, you'll always be able to find examples of extreme police behaviour which have to be um, ruled out and, and dealt with. But I think overall... The discussion of policing in this country should be focused on why the police are less and less reluctant to enforce the laws that are on our statute books. Because that's a democratic issue. Yeah. We vote for our laws. We vote for the laws in, you know, p Parliament passes laws because we vote for them. We vote for the MPs. MPs vote for the laws. And so the laws are there to represent our interests. That in, That's the whole principle of our constitutional system. That the... MPs are there in order to represent the will of the public. That's why they're there representing constituencies, you know, constituencies being the area of the country that they're there to represent. We vote them in, they go to Parliament, they vote on the laws. The laws pass if the majority of them believe, uh, um, if the majority of the members um, believe the law is a good one and it makes it onto the statute book. Similarly, if Parliament believes any law is bad, they have the power to repeal any law they want. If, if Parliament wants to get rid of a law, they can do it. So law, in theory, represents our democratic will. And the police are there to carry out the democratic will, to enforce the law um, on our streets. And if they don't do that, it breaks some, a, a pretty fundamental element of the social contract between us and the police. Because part of the reason we yeah. consent to be policed is because we, we want them to police others. That's the whole basis on which society proceeds. And when the police aren't helping in these situations or if they're not there, what can a motorist... I mean, because the problem was, I mean, you talked about that bridge before. That I think that was this German guy who's now being deported and there's a whole petition to stop him from being deported. And, and that's a whole thing as well because I've lived in several different countries. I lived in Germany for a few years, Argentina for six years, and I was always aware that I hadn't voted for these rules and anything like that. I, not that I was going to do any kind of protesting anyway, but I was particularly aware not to do things like breaking laws and things. And I think if I had, I would fully understand that Argentina or Germany might no longer really welcome me there and might want to send me back. So that's a whole thing going on right now but the reason this is a big problem at the moment um is, is because i mean in that case there was a heavily pregnant woman who needed urgent medical help uh, a person who missed the best their best friend's funeral a business that lost more than one hundred and sixty thousand pounds in earnings and that's just some of the list of things from that one specific case so this is this is the problem i suppose what can if you know what can you do within the law and you also don't want to run someone over even regardless of the law but how far can you push someone without yourself being prosecuted yeah so the principle is you can make a citizen's arrest. You know, those, uh, you hear those kind of um, high, yeah. highfalutin people saying, I'm making the citizen's arrest. <laughs> but you can, under the common law, you can do that. You can, in principle, take someone um, and intervene to prevent an offence being caused. So if someone is trying to move someone away from um, the road, they're not breaking the law and doing that. They're perfectly entitled to use force in order to do that. Of course, wow. that's not quite what we're seeing. We're seeing people decking them and kicking them in the head, which is yeah. less than ideal, <laughs> no. right? Um, yeah. But if they're dragging them off the road, they're perfectly entitled to do that. But they run back. Yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Well, 
I guess you have to kind of drag them to the side of the road and then lie on top of them until the cars can get through. Yeah. This is the thing. It's Put like, them in your car with you. I'd write, yeah, that sounds like the worst of both worlds, doesn't it? I, can't, I actually yeah. can't imagine anything worse than being stuck in a car with someone from Just Stop Oil. I think that would be... That, that I wouldn't go that far for my political cause. You know, it would be... Imagine if it were a diesel car. Yeah. <laughs> They'd probably end up throwing paint on me or something, you know? Yeah, they they do like to do they, that. They do like, um, yeah. You, you know, I was going to go to the, to another point I wanted to talk about today. Just um, and you were you were saying that the police actually very rarely, at least in the UK, they rarely are draconian. They do seem to be a bit obsessed with their image. There's a lot. They I have seen that a lot on their, their Twitter profiles of the official police. There's loads of stuff about look how sort of corporate woke we are and that, that kind of thing. Um, they are draconian though when when that helps to sort of uh, further progress that image and there was that infamous scene just a couple of weeks ago in the uk again people outside the uk won't necessarily be familiar with it maybe i can pop a video up here of it where an autistic young girl had apparently said that a police officer who was a woman looked like her grandma who was a lesbian so said she you know she looks like a lesbian or like grandma and they sent like 10 heavy-handed police officers in to, like, terrify this little girl. And I think they ended up actually arresting her, didn't they? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah, there was. There was an arrest. There was an inquiry. There was an investigation. Um, But the thing is, that kind of proves my point, because that's not authoritative policing. It's the opposite. It's because that girl broke no laws. No matter what the police say, that girl broke no laws in saying that that police officer looked like her lesbian grandma or whatever she said. You know, she didn't break the law. Yeah. And um, kind of storming in with 10 people to arrest a, a young girl is not authoritative policing. It's the opposite. It shows a police force that are floundering and weak and looking for any excuse to exhibit there. Because that's what this, you know, the police would not have to be woke and parading their woke credentials if they did their job fairly and objectively and enforced the law properly, if they did all of that and had always done that, then there would be no reason for them to behave in this way. It's because they have this history of partiality, unfairness, um, and, you know, because they have a particular story in their past and, the, and of their history that they have to then behave like this. And I just think it's, I think it's, I think we have a lot of really damaging ideas about the police. Um, mm. I think the idea that the police are institutionally racist needs more interrogation and needs more questioning. I think there are problems about race within the police, but um, I don't think, I, I think the term institutionally racist is too freely used and too, and is often used without enough interrogation about what we really mean. Uh, There's a difference, we should say, between, uh, I mean, it might be true of both, but it's a difference between UK and US uh, police and the histories and the complexities and how large they are. Just, I'm just aware of the uh, large viewership in, in the US and Canada and different places watching. Yeah, so the discussion in America is even more tricky. Um, so there's a lot of statistics around um, police violence against black people in America. But actually, when you break it down, the, the antagonism more often arises on the basis of class. So when you look at class in the States, people of a particular class are likely to be far more uh, over-policed. And in America, obviously, there is a correlation between class and race because black people are poorer in America. Um, here, the, uh, there is a, in the UK, the story is a little bit different. Um, 
you know, we have similar discussions around the over-policing of young black men, particularly in our cities, um, in relation to knife crime. And I think that's another, you know, I've been looking a lot at um, knife crime and about the way that the police respond. Um, and of course, the reason why um, there is this disparity in over-policing of young black men is that tragically, it is predominantly young black and Asian men who are losing their lives um, in the course of these incidents. You know, up until this year and last year, knife crime was taking the lives of hundreds of young black men every year. So much so that we come completely used to it. And to me, that was just so, it was so morally obnoxious to me that stories of horrifying murders of young black men were relegated to like the middle pages of the, of the newspaper, to local news. They just didn't get talked about. And these men were dying week after week after week after week. And it happened close to where I live. It happened um, all over London. And people just weren't talking about it. People just seemed to accept, people just seemed to have accepted that this was part of life for young people in our cities. And for me, that was such a, and, and, and if we did talk about it, all we would talk about is, well, the police shouldn't be using stop and search or the police, um, you know, this is because young people are alienated or they've closed their youth shops, or, you know, they've closed youth clubs down, they've been cuts to youth services and all of those explanations just seemed to be really missing the point for me. That It just seemed that there was something massive going on that we weren't quite talking about. And perhaps we haven't got time to talk about it in detail now. But um, for me, the whole discussion around knife crime shows us how I think there's a real problem of trust between the police and young black people, young black men in particular in, in our cities. I think some of that lack of trust is justified but we have to think about how we can repair that relationship because otherwise if young men don't believe that the law is there for them at all, if young people believe that they have no protection from the law, we, if young people believe that they have no protection from their local police officer, then they are going to take their safety into their own hands. And I think that's what we see an awful lot. You know, a lot of knife carrying I think is arises because young people feel unsafe um, and they feel unsafe because they get told that the police are institutionally racist. So we have to interrogate that more. We have to be less lazy with the way that we use these phrases because the way that we talk about the police germinates down and it impacts people's lives in ways we can't always predict. So I think we need to have a really deep discussion of policing in the context of race and also in the context, like trying to figure out what's going on with woke policing because it seems like the more woke the police get the less they help the people they're meant to and that i think is an interesting dynamic yeah there were parallels with i mean i do a lot on this channel about cults and cult dynamics and things and i used to sometimes do um islam and i i just now don't really want to talk about it because i after with what happened to salman rushdie i've got a family and i just don't need that whereas scientology will come after you it's not quite the same the way that they do it. They make websites about you and try to ruin you financially. And I think I can take that risk. Um, but something that somebody who I interviewed a long time ago was Yasmin Mohammed. She's an activist and who is heavily criticized by some of that progressive left side because she calls out a lot of the bad stuff that happen in that religion. I mean, this is what I do on this channel every week with all the other religions and cults and things like that. And she says to... 
um, you know, middle class white, uh, for lack of a better word, woke. I know we're using the word woke; it annoys people, and they're putting the comments. But give us a better word then for for what you know. Um, she says that they care when it's a a young white child who's had something horrible happen to them. You know, in an extreme Mormon family or uh, maybe a Hasidic Jew or Jewish family or whatever it is. But when it's a Muslim child, it's like, oh, no, don't want to hear about that because I don't want to offend anyone. So I just don't care what's happening to that child. And some of the stories that happen, it's just the worst, just the worst things. And your heart breaks listening to them. And as you say, it's sort of relegated to the... Not, it doesn't even make the newspapers because people are afraid of uh, hurting feelings and identities and things like that. Yeah, I'm, I, I'm sure that's right. And um, I just, I just think there was a there was a real fear amongst particularly um, white liberal commentators to look at this issue with any serious attention. There's a lot of academic work about knife crime and youth violence, but a lot of it repeats the same. Um, arguments about austerity a lot of them come from a similar perspective a lot of them receive um, you know a lot of them are carving out a niche which is basically blaming the problem on austerity and cuts and I just think when you look at the detail of each individual crime as I've done that just doesn't seem to make sense you know these are often young upwardly mobile young men um, often people who are um, in higher education, you know, doing A-levels on their way to university, huh. and suddenly find themselves in a murder case. You know, you think, how can this possibly happen? Thankfully, it seems to have um, relented over the last 18 months or so. Um, but I think it would be remiss not to seriously interrogate what had happened. Luke, where can we send people to check out your work? Yeah, so we're setting up a national, international law school. We've been, I've actually been running it for fifty, for well, seven years now called the Freedom Law Clinic. The Freedom Law Clinic is a completely new way to qualify as a lawyer. Um, you get immediate practical experience as well as training for um, the solicitor's qualifying examination. And we do it on a subscription basis, meaning it doesn't cost the earth to train as a lawyer. And we want to blast open the doors for legal education. We want more and more people to come and uh, join the legal profession we believe that we're striking a huge blow for diversity. Um, so check us out, um, www.freedomlawclinic.org. Oh, it sounds it's a noble pursuit. A blow for diversity in terms of just allow you know everyone in sort of thing. Yeah, I mean, an, a, a professional qualification at a normal law school would normally set you back six grand. Um, with us, it's about six of that, and you can pay it off monthly. Um, okay. And also, we give away a lot of education too. So log on to our website to find out. You, you know, we're giving away hundreds of scholarships. We're giving away lots of scholarships to people who work for interesting organizations. We're building links with um, local charities and local organizations who do important work. And if you're an activist or someone in your community who would benefit from legal education, then reach out to us and we'll think about training you for free. Oh, that's amazing. I did a similar thing like that for my NCTJ, which is the British uh, Journalism Qualification, uh, at a time where, you know, and I don't come from, from an uh, uh, impoverished background or anything, but I just would never have been able to afford it like in a million years. And I was able to do that. And without that, I wouldn't be a journalist now. So uh, I very much appreciate what you're doing. And I hope people do check it out. We'll put a link below.
Thank you, Luke, for coming on the podcast. Remember to go check out all of his links in the description. He was uh, fascinating. Uh, I don't think we exactly agreed on every single point, but we do on a lot of them. Um, And you don't have to either. You might go, hey, what's all this talk of woke this and woke that? You're just talking nonsense. Well, that's fine because we welcome plurality of thought on this channel. Um, Come and follow on andrewgold.locals.com as well. That's another thing you should be checking out. I put loads of videos on there. I've been doing a whole series in September on... um, um, there's the, the topic of paedophilia or pedophilia. Uh, and next month, I'm thinking psychopathy will be the thing I do on there. So that stuff's just on Locals. It's andrewgold.locals.com. I'll see you next time. Hello, it is Ryan. And we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.